0: The Knee Gurus, the latest research and advice from industry experts for best practice management on knee injuries and pain. Here's your host, Bevan Collis.
1: Welcome back to The Knee Gurus. I'm your host, Bevan Collis, and today I'm very excited to welcome Mick Hughes to the podcast. Mick is a sport and exercise physiotherapist and founder of Learn.Physio, which is an online learning module for physiotherapists and other health care professionals. Um, Mick, along with Randall Cooper, is also co-author of the Melbourne ACL Rehabilitation Guide, which was groundbreaking at that time, particularly when it was published, for being the first to give some concrete function-based progression guidelines for post-operative ACL, in opposed to the time-based progressions which were um, standard at the time. He's also uh, been somewhat of a champion for the quadriceps and open chain exercises at a time when many people particularly surgeons, were against open-chain exercises and many were were focused more on range of motion post-op than quadriceps firing and activation. Um, And he continues to be heavily involved in ACL management to this day. He's probably one of the highest profile ACL physiotherapists in Australia and he's still practicing seeing patients from his clinic in Townsville today. Um, and so we're very happy and excited to have Mick on the podcast today. Welcome to the Nigurus, Mick.
0: Oh, Bevan, what a what a uh, way to pump up my tyres! Thank you very much. Um, thanks for coming. <laughs> thanks for asking me to come along. It's uh, it's nice to have a chat. And it was actually nice to, nice to meet you uh, only a few months ago in Singapore too. So nice to put a face to your name. Um, so no, thanks. Appreciate it.
1: Terrific. Uh, so can you tell us a little bit how you got involved in having a, a special interest in ACL management?
0: yeah um i i kind of fell into it um largely because i th- thought that i sucked at it um and uh and and probably to be fair i, I did in my early early career i i i i i liked the thought of rehabbing acls and i saw a few acls early on in my career and um was managed managing maybe two or three a week we had we had like a good physio clinic here that had some good referral networks uh, from orthopedic surgeons here in Townsville. Um, and then when I moved to Newcastle, we had a similar kind of um, setup where we're getting a, a high volume of post-operative um, lower limb patients, including a lot of ACLs. So I was seeing like a solid uh, amount of ACLs early and um, it kind of it bubbled along the way and I thought I was doing a pretty good job. And and then effectively, I, I when I landed the job with Collingwood Magpies netball team as their head physio in 2016, um it, it really almost forced my hand to get better um we i'd landed myself in, in a job where acl injuries are going to be uh probably one of our, our more or knee injuries as a whole are going to be a, a more common injury we'll see as along with ankles but the list that i was working with we had uh, an acl patient and an acl athlete on our list who turned up at six months post-op and was about to start you know the, the season with us so um, and then we had a post-operative knee patient who just had a scope and some microfracturing um, done. So the, the knee rehab world, I really need to, to get my head around really, really quickly. Um, Cause the, the way with netball is too, in professional circles, we, we've got a list of 10 patients, uh, sorry, 10 athletes. Um, uh-huh. and we've got very, very lo- little margin for error. So if any one of those 10 athletes goes down, so we've got seven on a court, three on the bench, and then we've got a few sort of backup players who play in the lower competition. So if any one of your top 10 go down, you, you're then kind of losing you know, one of your key players and key personnel. So you, you can't afford to get things wrong. So yes. the AFL and rugby league, world soccer land, you know, like it hurts when you get things wrong, but there's a little bit more wriggle room and a bit more margin for error. For, net, for netball, I felt like we had almost none. So I, I dived straight into ACL rehab literature and took a deep dive there for a good 12 to 18 months. And um, was lucky enough to work firsthand at the coalface um, with that uh, athlete or those two particular athletes. And and then also learn a hell of a lot from the AFL guys um, who were working with the Collingwood Magpies. We had a really nice collegiate environment where well, I was learning off them, uh, taking heaps of, heaps of things on board. And that that kind of really um, stirred stirred me up and, and got a fire burning uh, for ACL rehab. And, and then from then, it kind of just one thing led to another. Um, at, at the back of that ACL, uh, at, at the end of that season, I was asked to present at Latrobe University Symposium um, on, on a particular case uh, of that netball athlete. So I presented that to an audience. And once again, when, when you're presenting, you, you're then sort of finding out more information. And yep. it just that, that's where it all started, Bevan. And it kind of just rolled on, you know, six, seven years later. Um, I'm still learning. Um, and the, the way ACL, research and publications are being spat out every month. Um, I'll be still learning for the next 20 years. I reckon maybe 30 years (laughs) Um, where it's it's a really, I guess of all the injuries that are out there and all the parts of the body, it's a, it's a nice evolving um, part of the body that we never, we never know enough about. And I don't think we'll ever find out all the answers, um, especially not over the next 20 years. We'll still be learning in 20 years time.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine. Um, And when you published the melbourne acl rehabilitation guide how how was the reaction to it was did you get any pushback or did people sort of feel that oh the penny's finally dropped you know we can't just say that because someone's 12 weeks post-op that they're okay to run and we need to think a bit more about these progressions or did did, uh, how was it sort of received from as the author
0: it was it was pretty good. Like uh, to be fair, it was it was really well received. And and to um, I I'd certainly need to credit my my co-author Randall Cooper. He um he he came up with the first set of guidelines back in the sort of late two thousands. I think he f- published the first set of guidelines in two thousand and eight. Um, then it kind of sat out there online for everyone to sort of you know see. Obviously, before the popularity of Instagram and social media's and. YouTube, but um, it kind of sat there online um, doing its thing for a while with not too much attention given to it. But then 2016, 2017, all this wonderful ACL research and discharge criteria uh, came out and and, um, the research from uh, Caritsis and uh, Grindham 2016 that sort of showed criteria is, is a much better way to look at clearing someone to return back to sport rather than um yeah passing time frames alone um so it was an interesting time frame 2016 because that's where the research I think changed quite a lot dramatically towards a criteria driven program with ACL and, and discharge criteria being really key um so I I then teamed up with Randall we were, we worked together on bringing his original Melbourne ACL rehab guide to 2.0 with with a with a reboot and an update um yeah. to answer your question about pushback there, there wasn't much at all like to be honest the only pushback we got originally originally was you know why are you charging five bucks for the guide
1: <laughs> that was that was yeah, i think i paid a hundred yeah remember <laughs> you paid too much mate yeah. <laughs> um the, the guide
0: was it was five dollars us that that you know like we covered a few costs for production costs we made a little bit of a profit there but ultimately it led us to growing learn.physio to what it is too like we you know we, we use that those that, that money to you know build new educational contents and all that kind of stuff. And and ultimately our, our, next, um, version of learn, uh, sorry, the next version of Melbourne ACL rehab guide 3.0, which will come out next year will be free. Uh, we'll have a free website. It'll be all, you know, all the bells and whistles and it'll be really fancy and it'll be absolutely free for everyone to enjoy. Um, so yeah, look, that, that's the only pushback we got. We didn't, we didn't get much from surgeons. Um, we, the surgeons embraced it. We had some surgeons who, um, uh we're, we're basically handing it out to their patients saying look this is what you need to be doing um uh yeah like we 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 loved it we we were really blown away and chuffed by how how it was well well, well received not only in australia but but worldwide we, we had clinicians reach out to us from america from europe from um uk you know, parts of asia saying you know i use my guide and i still use use your guide uh, on a on a daily basis even five six years later people are still using it um which, which is wonderful it's it's really it's really lovely to see and uh yeah we can't wait to release the next version next year when when the times right. Yeah,
1: yep terrific um it's definitely been a boon to uh acl management one of the questions i ask uh in any interview i'm doing with my sort of prospective physios is is what changes has there been to the ACL landscape in the last few years and what do you think about the ACL Rehabilitation Guide and if they've got no idea what the Melbourne ACL Rehabilitation Guide is then they're probably unlikely to get a job. Um, so little tip out there for prospective employees. Um, so when we're digging into these, um, th- these guidelines for, for progression, if we go to the sort of early stage uh, post-operative uh, tests w- w- when do you think we should start testing and, and and what are we what are we testing in the early early stage sort of pre uh eight weeks ten weeks say post-op and, and what markers are we hoping to 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 hit
0: yeah no awesome awesome question i i um i've certainly changed my practice in the last probably six months here as well like i, I i'd probably usually hold off to test quads, uh, test hamstrings at about the three-month mark. Um, that that was kind of my standard behaviour. Isometrically um, in a handheld, using handheld dynamometry more often than not, um, uh, isometrically at 90 degrees to test quads um, and hamstrings. That would be my kind of go-tos at 12 weeks. But I've, I've found over the last few months that I, I actually start testing at about six weeks post-op now because it can kind of give the patient a, a little bit of an idea because often at six weeks, some people are, are going really well. They feel like they're killing it um, and it can be uh, an answer to what, what they're, what they're feeling. And even clinically to you, it can give you an answer as to how they, they truly are going. Um, they may be completely overconfident in their ability or um, they might be absolutely exactly where, where, where they're saying, because the reality is if they're doing really well at six weeks, weeks post op in terms of their quadricep activity and their ability to recruit their quads and they've maintained their muscle mass really nicely and they haven't let the arthrogenic muscle inhibition really kick in and their patellofemoral joint pain's being pretty well you know kept at bay um mm-hmm. they, and their quads are looking really nice and nice and healthy um i arguably arguably will they'll, they'll they'll continue on a nice trajectory to about that 3 month mark where they'll probably sit at a level somewhere between 70 percent limb symmetry index give or take five or ten percent above or below um and we know that's an important marker because we know if we are sort of at that level people are getting really close to running and that's their first major mental milestone and physical milestone like you ask most athletes that have had an acl reconstruction most of them the first question is when can i run again um, when can yep. i sort of get on the field and kick a footy again and, and we need to run to do those things so ballpark figures and what surgeons will tell them is that you'll be running at three months and it's like once again as we said before th- time alone is a really poor indicator but if we can give them a rough time time frame here to say are you on are you on track um to hit this 70 percent limb symmetry mark which is a which is a rough guide but a, a reasonable goal at three months at least we can sort of get an idea are they close at six months uh, sorry are they close at six weeks because if if they do an isometric test at six weeks they've got pain they got atrophy they really struggling they've got poor range of movement in their head they're thinking i'm going to be running in six weeks time at the three month mark yet they can only punch out a, a strength test that sits them at 20 percent limb symmetry they've got absolutely no chance of running at three months so then you can adjust the goal for them you can say look the way you're tracking at the moment, we, we may need to change your expectations here. So I, I see the value in, in a six-week test um, because it can sort of tell you, are, are they tracking in the right direction or or are their expectations a little bit off? And it allows you to sort of redirect their goals a little bit more. So yeah, that they're, they're my kind of main two goals and and more so quads than hamstrings. Hamstrings don't have the same effect on the patellofemoral joint and the knee in terms of shock absorbing and, and work done at the knee when you need to run. Um, yep. Hamstrings, yeah, we need the hamstrings for high-speed running, which are super important for later on. But at, at three months when they go for their first run, it, it won't be a sprint by any means. So it, I, I certainly weight the quadricep test more than the hamstring test. Um, and I certainly put place more emphasis on that one.
1: And have you got a number that you're hoping people can hit at that six-week
0: at six weeks, I think if they if they're at about the fifty, if they've got fifty percent limb symmetry, give or take five five percent, um, mm-hmm. where we'll 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 get that we'll get there in the next six weeks more often than not. Um, Great. But if if they're really struggling to hit fifty percent limb symmetry by six weeks, we'll, we'll probably um, yeah we we might be a little little bit off there. They they are yeah look there's that's just my sort of clinical experience here. It depends on your setup, depends on your patient, and there'll be different things. But that, that's that that's more of an experiment, yeah experience um, kind of number based thing. There's nothing hard or firm in the literature there that says if you hit 50% by six weeks, you'll be you'll follow this trajectory. That's what I've, the trends that I've been seeing in the clinic.
1: Yep, that's no, a clinical gem there. Um, 50% at six weeks, quads symmetry. Um, and tell us a little bit about range of motion and how much value you put on that post-op. Because it seems like the patients and a lot of surgeons and a lot of physios, to be fair, really focus on flexion range of motion as the key indicator as to how someone's going. Um, And I had a knee surgery in Japan and I knew that every time I was going to the physio downstairs, they they kept you in hospital for two years there, that the, the only thing the physio was looking at is how much flexion I had in my knee and the goniometer was out and I'm measuring it degree by degree, day by day. Um, where, where do you see the flexion, in particular, as, as important as as a guideline for post operative, and and also if you could touch on extension as well?
0: Yeah, flexion not so much, to be honest. Um, for me, flexion is important um, to ride to ride a bike, um, and and we know riding a stationary bike um, can be super helpful for a lot of different things early on in the rehab process. So. Um, you need about 105 degrees on a on an exercise bike to actually, you know, sit up fairly high on the seat, to actually sure. strike down on the pedal and then come up, you know, pretty comfortably without having to drop your foot and hit your hip and do these real funky things. So you need at least 105 degrees. Um, that that's the main from a from a reflection point of view, that's the thing that I probably matter the most. Beyond 105 degrees. I'm not too particular about you know we've got to be 120 by week 6 we've got to be 130 by week you know you know 20 or whatever I I I don't believe we don't I don't think we need to be so particular with with those you know specific angles beyond that. Um, riding a bike can be grateful for helpful for you know range of movement, t- it's bending and straightening your knee nicely. We're um, getting lots of you know low impact exercise to help with fluid removal, pain. But mentally for someone to get on, on a bike and actually start some cardiovascular work is mentally, you know, and, and physically powerful for them. So that's a big thing for me. Um, I, I definitely put more emphasis on extension. We we I, I really try to chase extension early. Um, yeah. But not to the point that I'm forcing or chasing hyperextension either. Um, hyperextension will come, like flexion, it will come. Um, I, I I don't believe in pushing and really being greatly physical with a particular patient just to get you know a five degree shift in flexion in in a session. I, I find that they end up the knee ends up flaring up and gets in cra- there cra- and and you, you you piss off the knee and it gets swollen and sore and they can't train the next couple of days because you've aggravated it. Um, yep. Consistency is really key there. And I, I b- firmly believe people will find their own way into a range of movement if we just let them get there on their own accord. I, I firmly believe that, yeah, you, you be too hands-on and too vigorous early, we just end up, um, yeah, going one step forward, two steps back constantly. And it's not helpful to anyone. But yeah, extension definitely, I want to, I want a straight knee because we know the quads, um, yeah, you you'd need a zero degrees extension um, to get really healthy quad recruitment. Um, so that when they're walking in terminal knee stands, they actually can contract their quad and, and straighten their knee out. Um, yeah, they can do a straight leg raise, they can do knee extension work and, and get that quad firing really, really nicely. That that's what I play, pay really close particular attention to.
1: And what about for the patients who are who are lagging behind full extension? Say they're eight weeks post-op and they have still got uh, ten degrees or more extension lag. Have you got any tips for physios or patients on exercises or way they can they can you know push that and get it a little bit faster?
0: Yeah, I, I, well, funnily enough, I, I find it's often the absence of open chain knee extension work can can do it um, can can help that along quite nicely because often That's interesting. Yeah, often just the simple act of getting the quads a bit more excited can actually get them that last little bit of bit of active range. Um, yeah, if if it's a if it's a, a lack, so they you know have got a passive restriction there, then you know it's hard to hard to do that. that. But if they can passively be moved into knee extension, yeah, they just don't have that strength to move at that last 10 degrees. And that's something we can that we can change quite nicely. Um, you know, sitting open chain exercises against gravity can be helpful. You might need to passively take them out there into a full knee lock. You get them to even just try to hold their legs straight on the edge of the bed. So that's hovering there in their extension. And then you get them to slowly eccentrically lower it. That's a really yeah. simple strategy there. They can do that with their other leg or they can get a partner or you can do that in the physio clinic where you're passively taken there, hold it there locked. And down you come. That's a really simple one. Um, and good old-fashioned terminal knee extensions in standing, that that can work. But once again, you've got to be careful that they're not extending at the hip and they're cheating through the hip to try and lock the knee out. You really need that quad, really locking, locking down and shutting, shutting that knee tight. But I, I find that first option there, that passive knee extension, and then getting them to hold it there statically and then the focused eccentric lowering that goes a long way in, in helping that little uh extension lag
1: and what about um in japan i know they often recommend people to get a five kilo bag of rice and put that on top of their knee when it's out in full extension and try to relax and let that push into do you think that sort of passive uh push into the extension like that's beneficial
0: yeah I, in, in a way I, I think that might be he- helpful i think um it just might get a bit irritable with the the hamstring harvest uh so your hamstring autographs just might get a bit cranky like that that harvest tissue at the back of the leg there can definitely be a bit more guarded activity there, and a bit of jumping there if we're forcing it into a, a stretch even into a bit of hyperextension you might get a bit of that that tightness and that soreness just largely through that mechanism so i think we've probably just got to be careful with the loading um but it, look yep. if they can sit there comfortably um yeah you know, with their leg elevated with nothing underneath them and you know draper two kilo five kilo bag of rice as long as it's not sore and you know painful and uncomfortable that there's there's probably some value in doing that um like anything we just got to be i think we've got to be really careful in chasing hyperextension if we're chasing extension great it's just chasing that hyperextension we just got to be really careful
1: yeah 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 i think that's a good a couple of good tips there. Be careful with the hamstrings, and more for people with, you know, noticeable extension lag than somebody that's got full extension and pushing a hyper. And uh, so we touched earlier a little bit in the intro, and you sort of mentioned it earlier. You you've been somewhat of a, of a champion for open chain exercises, and I think we can attribute the quote "quads are king" to to you. I'm not sure if that was yours or not, but. um that's um, one that we use in our clinic a little bit. People say, "Oh, Bevan likes to say quads are king." What's a, so? Some of my staff to say, "Oh, quads are king." It's a trademark Bevan Collis. I said, "No, I can't take the credit for that. I'm pretty sure it was McHugh's." But, um, but, uh, and I think with this database measurement, it's been it's been really cool to, to to put a number on the quads and and probably glutes have become super trendy over the last five ten years, and and, and quads get a little bit forgotten about or have been a little bit forgotten about um uh can you tell us a little bit about the history of, of closed chain the, the closed chain versus open chain debate and and um and how you got around to, to i guess working out and putting emphasis on quadriceps firing quadricep strength is one of the key markers post-stop or post-injury
0: yeah, I've, I've certainly listened to a lot more people, a lot of people who are smarter than me in this space. And I've, I've sort of learned a hell of a lot. Like Lynn Snyder Mackler from the US um, has been a huge advocate for open chain, their extensions for a long time. I, I've listened to a lot of her work and read a lot of her work. Um, yep. Eric Mira as well from the US. They're, they're just really sensible um, clinicians who, when you, when you listen to them talk and the work they've done, um, it really sort of dispels um, a myth about open chain exercise. Like one of the simplest things I learned from Eric, for example, is that, you know, when that graft gets placed in, it, even in the first two to four weeks, it's going to be the strongest that that ligament, it's, it's effectively hard tendon at that point before it starts necrosing and dying and going through the ligament, ligamentization process. So for those mm-hmm. first three to four weeks, that that's going to be the, the, the strongest and the most stable and the most solid that that ACL is going to be for the next arguably next 12 months so why, why do we worry about it so much you know like it's only you know like in that kind of eight six 12 week window where things just get a little bit weakened off inside the knee but even still the loads that that person is lifting you know if we're keeping the weight relatively light relative to the person's body weight but also to light in terms of repetition range we're not going to do any damage or stretching to, to the ACL graft, even in that kind of window there, if we go through full range. And, and Lynn Snyder-Mackler sort of backed that up with her work as well. But it, I think the argument definitely came back from some pieces of research in the 90s that did, did show there were, there were some translations, uh, differences between closed-chain exercise and open-chain exercises um it was a lot of experimental stuff um and there was it was done in a population and forgive me if I'm wrong here I'll have to double check but from Lynn's recall the 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 translation was actually done on a group of ACL deficient knees as well so yeah so yeah they already had laxity there and then we put an open chain you know exercise into it and it kind of shifted the tibia more which added more laxity arguably to it so um so some of that early research unfortunately stuck and, and held held on, and then we had some other 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 trials sort of show strain values that were that were large with open chain exercise versus closed chain, but it never really answered the question about stretching the graft and all that kind of stuff. So eventually, we got to a point where um, there were some um, rant, there was a couple of trials done. There was one one trial done in 2013 that introduced. Um, open chain exercises from week four to week 12 in a reduced range of movement between 45 and 90 degrees. And they had a group of early participants and late participants. So late participants were starting from week 12 onwards through full range. And then we had the early participants that were 45 and 90 from weeks four to week 12. Effectively, there, were, there was no um, differences in graft laxity between, between those two groups. Once again, at that stage, we weren't, seeing the full range of movement, but we're growing confident in actually open-chain exercising patients, even though we're still reducing some, some movement. Now, that's led the guidelines that have come out. So there's been three or four guidelines published in the last four years that have said open-chain exercises are safe. Um, there's still question marks remain about, do we go um, full range from day one um, and how much load do we apply? Um, or do we still just be a bit cautious and introduce them from week four to week 12 in uh, forty five to ninety to ninety degree angles, um, so it's less of a question now about are they safe? The question is yes, but it's more about what range of movement do we work with, what loading do we work with um, and that that's where a recent trial, like literally two thousand and twenty three uh, uh, a French researching group um, he, uh, head, headlined by Florelli uh, was the leading author. They did open chain exercises starting from week four zero to 90 degrees, um, and they did it three times a week, eight sets of eight, <laughs> um, so lots of volume. Um, and then they did a the six-month follow-up and they had no differences between um, groups between the laxity um, seen at, at that six-month follow-up. So. In, in the most recent publication, there, there's no differences in graph laxity, even when we start going zero to 90 degrees with our open chain exercises starting from week four. So it's a bit of a dog dog's breakfast at the moment. Um, and there's no true clarity because we've got some guidelines saying we should still be a bit cautious and go 45 to 90 from week four to week 12. And then we've got some publications saying, look, it's safe to go zero to 90. We probably haven't reached consensus yet. So based on what, Um, there is available. I I kind of structure my open chain in a couple of ways. So I'll go zero to 90 from day one. If they can sit on the edge of the bed comfortably, and the minute they can do that, where they can sit on the edge of the bed at 90 degrees and hang there, and if they can extend their knee up to zero against gravity, then we're doing that. That that there is very safe. There's like 3% strain on the graft tissue, which is going to be less than a body weight squat. And if, you, if we're comfortable squatting and putting 10 kilos on someone's back, 20 kilos on someone's back, yet this is less strain than sitting on the edge of the bed is less strain than putting weight on someone's shoulders. And that's 4% strain. Then we've got our priorities wrong. Also walking and that, term that uh, mid stance strain values on the graft is going to be once again two to three times that of someone sitting on the edge of the bed and kicking their leg up against gravity. Even if you have five yep. kilos of load, that strain value goes only up to four percent as well. So it's a very minimal shift. So yep. I think if we're comfortable dishing out leg presses, squats, and closed chain exercises, yet we're a bit cautious and careful of and being fearful of open chain exercises, even with a five kilogram load. Um, then we're probably worrying about the wrong things. Um, but definitely I, I sort of hold people at about five kilos a load, maximum zero to 90. Um, Lynn, Lynn Snyder may Snyder may sort of shake her head and say I'm being too soft there, but um, she um, she's definitely got a, a more experience under her belt when it comes to the loading. But what makes me sleep well at night is I'll do open chain exercise, zero to 90, about five kilos max with most people until week 12. making the patellofemoral joint stay really comfortable um, and happy and we'll just do that i will add more load between 45 and 90 so i'll restrict the ranges from about week four and i'll start Mm -hmm. saying let's add five kilos 10 kilos 20 kilos whatever the person can do and we'll do say three lots of 15 you know kind of reps in a 45 to 90 degree range with some load and then from week 12, we're we're going for it. We're opening up and we're gradually adding load over time. And you know, knee extensions after 12 weeks look really no different to um someone you'd grab a healthy population person from, from the street and say, let's let's make your knee stronger. Um, you know, let's get your open chaining uh, really sensibly. Um yeah. meanwhile, we've got all the closed chain work integrated as well.
1: Yeah, great, great stuff. I one of the quotes I remember. Listening to from Lynn Snyder Mackler on a on a podcast um, was that open chain knee exercises are not only safe but they're essential in that there's some unique uh, properties to them that gets the quadriceps firing much better than um, closed chain exercises. But um, so, but you're giving some great guidelines there as to as to how to fit them in. And and like many f- things in ACL, there's still a lot of uh, unknown there and um, and we we need to get a little bit better with, with, with being a little bit more systematic as to how we use them. Um, so just moving on, still on the early stage stuff, sorry. Um, can you tell us a little bit about blood flow restriction and your electrical stim, your complex and those uh, types of things? Are you using those much in your clinical practice and how do you sort of see those fitting in for uh, ACL rehabilitation?
0: Yeah um to be honest I, I i don't use either very much at all um i i i've been reading a little bit more obviously both have been you know both e-stim and bfr definitely getting some i mean you, you talked to once again lynn to mackler's you know the god the godmother of this you know she did some electrical stim work neuromuscular electrical stim work back in the 90s and she's been a advocate for that for, for years and a proponent of it for years and years and it's only just started to regather some popularity again um but it's it's in recommend it's been recommended in acl guidelines for quite some time now um to really get on top of that that um muscle inhibition that's very evident after acl injury and acl reconstruction um i i find i guess the 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 barrier for me to to bring it in and this won't be the same for everyone everyone's clinical environment it's just that if we're going to do e-stim, my patient isn't going to go home that afternoon with a Compex, Um, or they, they generally don't have a complex at home. So I will ask them, do they have a a, a unit at home? Also, yeah, because yeah, um, to get the most out of it, we need to yeah you know, be doing it five times, seven times a week or even sometimes yep. twice a day. So if you've got 45 minutes with a patient and they don't have a unit to go home with, I just don't... I think philosophically, I want to give them some tools that they can re- reproduce two to three times a day over and over and over again, Um, rather than sort of spend 20 minutes um, that I'm only going to use once a week. Um, So I, I just, for me, I just, for that one reason, I don't do it. because so I, I go away and say, all right, how am I going to get this person recruiting their quads better at home? So I'll use cryotherapy. Cryotherapy is my big thing. I'll say, ice the crap out of your knee around the clock for the next, you know, three four weeks really get on top of that pain relief, so you can recruit your quads better. With better quads recruitment, we're we're shifting, we're pumping, we're getting the muscle excited, we're helping to re- reduce swelling, we're helping you improve your function, we're helping improve knee extension, we're helping you all benefit benefit your knee in many many different ways. So I just sort of look at you know what's my biggest bang for buck thing here, and so and that that so that that same breath, it's the same reason why I don't use much BFR. Um, unless this patient can come in twice a week, six for six weeks in a row, um, once again, I, I don't want them to go home and use BFR unsupervised, um, especially in that first one month when the you know, blood clotting and and post-op complications are, are a high risk, and I don't want them to do that unsupervised. But I will do it if they're really struggling with patellofemoral joint pain. And that that's really my main indicator here is if they got PFJ pain they're struggling and we can't recruit their quads no matter what we're trying, yeah, we will yep. we'll use BFR in the clinic, and we'll, we'll go through a block of training where I will get them to come in twice a week for a month or so, and we'll we'll get on top of it. Um, but outside of that, I, I kind of really reserve my use of both of those things really judiciously, and, and I, I, I very rarely use it. Okay, nice one. Not, not to say um, that I'm right either. There's there, there's probably <laughs> a lot of people would argue against me, and that and that's that's fair too, because um, the evidence is there for that to be used. But I, I think in, in my clinical situation at the moment where most patients are coming in once a week, um, so it's, more it's just, it's just, it's just hard, hard to justify sort of giving giving them all that information if they can't go away themselves and reproduce what's most important to them at the moment. And yeah, that, that's kind of where I sit at the moment.
1: Yep. Okay, good one. So if we just move on, I know we're running a bit short of time, but if we move on from a kind of early stage to mid-stage, once the knees calm, um, you've got range of motion back, um, but you've still got big strength uh, deficits, say 12 weeks plus. Um, one of the, the changes that we've been making in our clinics with the rehab is to do more heavier weights, and there has there is uh, research to show that people doing heavy weights, um, say with five, f- a few sets of five. With maybe they they could do eight um, if they had to, but they're quite yeah quite heavy weights rather than see three sets of twelve where maybe they could do twenty. Um, and yeah, so really just loading up the knee a lot more than we probably have in the past. And um, are you, how how are you sort of prescribing exercises to that? phase and how are you feeling like particularly for patients who maybe aren't familiar with resistance training i know it's a little bit of a of a hard sell to do so low reps when they're just familiar with you know 10 and 12 and it's it's obviously a, a bit more scary and intimidating to to push such heavy loads in a knee that they're still sort of learning to trust again how how are you sort of managing that
0: yeah it, it, it is it's an important time time frame too like that like you said that three month mark three to six months where um, you know running's kind of in the mix jumpings in the mix i've got return to sport goals you know penciled in for about the nine month 12 month mark so we, we need to make a shift and we need to wash away strength issues power issues and and the really the only way forward for these patients is is as you said like to to lift heavier <clears throat> so so the muscle the muscle strength and the power in the in, in the limb. Can can deal with those forces when they hop, when they jump, when they land, when they change direction. There's there's no 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 way getting around it. So, it is a bit of a hard sell for people who are uh, unfamiliar to the to the gym. Um, I think how I kind of soften that for people who've never squatted before, never deadlifted before, who are just really sort of their form may not be great. You know, there's so much value in just the good old fashioned knee extension, hamstring curl, and leg press. You know, like. It, it, you, you sit and push yes it's not very exciting and you know I, a lot of people would argue it's not functional but if these people want to have function they've got to build a strength base there that's what makes them functional is you know you can't be functional when you've got a 30 a percent strength difference between limbs and you, you're clearly compensating one side over the other you can't function your way out of that you can't functionally train your way out of that stuff so just to, to actually go in and do some isolated work in a really safe, controlled manner can be a really simple strategy. Where, yeah, you you, you really challenge them. I, I I do find though we might need to make a, a, a very careful steps though to go from where the first three months where it's probably a bit light, light and easy, where they're probably sitting somewhere between you know three sets of fifteen rep range roundabout they're they're punching out three sets of 15s per exercise for a good chunk of time there to go from 15s down to sets of fives within a month can sometimes be a big big bridge to cross so i'll I'll definitely just once again bite-sized chunks every three to four weeks i'll say all right we're gonna you know get used to this load you know, twice a week, three times a week, we're going to go to the gym. We're going to lift. We're going to you know, basically do three sets at 12 now or four sets of 12 now rather than 15. So we're going to lift a little bit heavier, but you're still going to be able to force out the reps and do that. Three weeks later, four weeks later, we're all right. We're going to take you down to tens. All right. And we're going to just go down that little bit, little bit, little bit more. Um, and Three or four weeks later, we're going down a little bit more. So little step wise, I, I think that's, for me, that's probably the strategy that I take, um, especially for those that are unfamiliar with the gym um even those that are familiar with the gym the the 15s down to fives once again can just get a bit bit tricky um you just got to be careful with how the knee reacts um if it gets swollen so we just need to make some running adjustments but absolutely there needs to be a shift um so you'd want to be hopefully hanging around about the six month mark seven month post-op mark and, and they hopefully are sort of punching out you know four sets of six five sets of six or five sets of fives or four sets of fours, whatever your whatever your poison is, they, they yep. should be there round about that figure, around about the six or seven month post-op mark. So um, their, their limb can be much more tolerant to the hopping, landing, jumping stuff. And then eventually training the sport.
1: Terrific. I know you've got to um, head off, but just one last uh, thing. I wanted to touch a little bit on non-surgical ACL. It's obviously a very hot topic at the moment. Can you tell us about um, how the rehab differs plus or minus the cross bracing protocol or any other bracing protocol there's a few out there um and can we is the melbourne acl rehabilitation guide still uh, relevant for for people who are choosing a non-surgical pathway is sort of replacing the 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 post-op um with post-injury um markers or is is there a non-surgical melbourne guide on the way or
0: yeah Yeah. it's a great question because like arguably no the the rehab is no different um cross bracing protocol definitely differs um they you know the the range of movement restriction um i think you had steph bilbae on the podcast a few weeks ago hopefully she dived into it a bit but the the cross bracing protocol you know effectively makes the patient non-weight bearing for the first six weeks and first four weeks you're in 90 degrees and then you gradually increase your range of movement and your weight bearing status until week week 12 sorry week 10 and then you're fully weight bearing up until week 12 outside of a brace so because of that big restriction to encourage and healing the, the the rehab protocol absolutely differs um and they've got their own protocol that we we should be adhering to and ad- ad- abiding by um those that are um trying to just re, trying to just rehabilitate without the cross bracing protocol um, and and to see if they, their knee can cope without ACL um, or even see if they can be a lucky healer because they, they the lucky healers exist out there that spontaneously heal without any formal bracing protocol that we just these people just need time um, yeah. And if we can buy three months of, of their life and try and get them to rehabilitate and if they want to roll the dice and not brace their brace their knee, we'll know by about three months post-op, you know, clinically how the knee's feeling. And if they want to go spend the money on another MRI and see ha- has it been successful, that that that's a, that's an option for them. But when you've got the non-bracing, uh, non-operative patient um, going through rehab, it, it really doesn't differ at all um, compared to an ACL reconstruction. And Melbourne ACL Rehab Guide, once again, just adjusts accordingly. So as you said, instead of being um yeah you know, post-surgical you, you're post-injury so and in fact what ends up happening because you haven't had that second insult to the knee which is surgery their progressions through rehab uh, are actually a little bit quicker because their, their knee joint is only had had one abusive load which is the injury um you don't have that second uh trauma to the knee which really rattles up the knee makes them their muscles you know shut down and that swelling and pain kicking so you'll actually find a lot of these people actually progress through rehab a little bit quicker and progress through the guide a little bit quicker too. So um, that, that, that's a big positive. Um, The only thing I would say differs a little bit is that if we do want to see if this person can be a lucky healer and there's, there's no shred of evidence to say what I do here is right, but I will restrict their range of movement on a knee extension because I do know that ACL is recovering and is spontaneously healing I know if I'm going to take him out to uh, full full chain, full range, open chain, the extensions, and we've got those high strain values at zero and 30 degrees, I just, feel once again, philosophically, I just wonder, am I disrupting that healing process if I get them to go full range there and place a, a strain on the recovering ACL, if that is happening? Um, I just do wonder about that. So I, I do protect their range until week 12. So I'll go 90 to 45, just biologically and clinically reasoning my way. And then yep. from week on onwards, we'll, we'll fully open open them up. So that's probably where it differs a little bit. Um, but yep. other than that, it's largely the same.
1: Yeah, I guess uh, hopefully the next um, stage, speaking with Tom Cross, he's hoping to publish his paper on the ACL tear type classifications so we'll get a better understanding of what ACL injuries are likely to heal and which ones are unlikely to heal, and and uh, that'll give us a bit of a, of a better guide as to how we, we manage those patients. But at the moment, there's very few radiologists or doctors or healthcare professionals at all who can read the MRIs with the same level of skill as Tom Cross and the guys um, involved in that study, so I hope, definitely, Yes. All right. Um, well, thank you very much for your time today, Mick. It's been terrific, and I'm sure uh, people involved in rehabbing ACLs as well as um, uh, as people who have sustained an ACL injury is what we sort of set up this podcast for, to, to help people uh, through their ACL rehabilitation journey from decision-making through to early decision-making to return to sport. We'll, we'll find this invaluable as well, and I'm certainly better clinical gems out of it myself as well.
0: That's awesome. Oh well, thanks, Ben. Thanks for the opportunity to talk shop, mate. I appreciate it. Thanks. The Knee Gurus, brought to you by Asia Physio, providing world-class physiotherapy care across Asia. Visit our clinics in Tokyo, Singapore, Niseko, Hakuba, Nozawa and Miyoko Kogan.